for those of you who are LSE students, you're fortunate 86 years after Sidney Webb to have a much better qualified Iraq expert on the faculty, Professor Toby Dodge, who uh, is giving what are certainly much wiser lectures on Iraq uh, and other matters to the student body here. Though if Sidney Webb's uh, history is a guide, then Dr. Dodge is fated to leave you very soon to become a cabinet minister in charge of Britain's Middle East policy and will also be elevated to the House of Lords, uh, to which he knows already that I recommend the title of Lord Tobias of Baghdad. <laughs> the um, uh, Iraq after America, uh, the the the, uh, the, uh, the genesis of this book was uh, my annoyance, uh, really, at the way Iraq was had been uh, uh, treated in, in the literature of the past uh, twelve years. Most of the literature that was produced about Iraq, about the Iraq War. Um, on the American side had to do with it, uh, it could have been America and country X it was as though it were some uh, formless shapeless country and, and, and the literature all pertained to, uh, to what was happening inside the Washington D.C. beltway pretty much or inside the U.S. military and it tended to skip right over uh, the involvement of the Iraqis themselves Iraqi society, Iraqi politics or to the extent that those uh, those topics were covered, it, they tended to be covered in a very oversimplified way. Um, but I thought that Iraq was an important enough country uh, on its own, on its own merits, uh, uh, to, to merit further investigation um, uh, after uh, the United States military withdrew. Um, and also to, to be to be analyzed, to be, to be investigated free of the questions of whether it was right or wrong to invade in 2003, the way we did, or whether it was right or wrong to withdraw in 2011, the way we did. Uh, so I thought that we needed to assess um, Iraq as it stands now and our own interests in Iraq um, uh, without uh, the past baggage. I also, it, however, the, the book wouldn't have come into existence at all, I think. I wouldn't have uh, completed it anyway, um, if not for the urging of the late Professor Fouad Ajami uh, from Johns Hopkins uh, Sice uh, University in Washington and then later of the Hoover Institution, who pressed me about every week uh, to, to complete this, uh, this book. And I owe a lot to him uh, for, uh, for the way it turned out. Um, uh, and, and I owe a great deal to him for his uh, wisdom and skill. And I also consciously modeled this book after his work, including uh, his work on Syria, the Syrian rebellion. The method that I uh, tried to pursue was to go back and examine the post-Saddam uh, uh, power struggle that was unfolding in Iraq from an Iraqi perspective and factoring the Americans and the, and the rest of the U.S.-led coalition out to the extent that it could be done to try to let the internal Iraqi competition for power and survival come into greater relief. And when you do that, it's easier to see that the conflict very much predates 2003. And there are, uh, there are much longer-running trends and competitions exp extending back in uh, modern Iraqi history for several dec uh, decades. And I would say there are larger tectonic plates that are shifting within Iraqi society and politics, and th those are more important than any metaphenomenon uh, that's happening in the near term, such as ISIS, and more about that a little bit later. I believed I observed that there were three trends that had come to dominate post-Saddam Iraqi politics. Authoritarianism, sectarianism, and Shia Islamist militant resistance. So I set out to trace those trends back 
far enough into recent Iraqi history to explain where they came from, how they've interrelated and collided since 2003, and where they're likely to lead the country in the future. And along the way to describe the most powerful of the Iraqi political factions today and how they relate to one another. And so to briefly describe each of these trends in turn. By authoritarianism, I meant the consolidation of state power that Nuri Maliki and his cadre of Dawah Party loyalists undertook from 2006 to 2014 during which they succeeded in returning much of the Iraqi government to the muscle memory, if you will, of the authoritarian state that Saddam and the Ba'ath had ruled. These Maliki Yun, or the Maliki regime members, originated as part of the Iraqi Shia Islamist movement of the 1960s and 1970s that was led by uh, Ayatollah Mohammed Bakr Sadr. And they were shaped afterward by Saddam's crackdown against Dawah starting in the 1970s and, and really hitting its peak in 1979, and by the Iran-Iraq War, during which they grew into a militant cadre, the Dawah Party, that was essentially a mirror image of the Ba'ath with whom they were at war. After 2003, they managed to grow from a weak junior partner in the Shia Islamist uh, opposition into a powerful ruling network that uh, controlled virtually all the national level institutions of government uh, and Iraqi political life. And they did this by consolidating controls of the pillars of the Iraqi state, as Professor Dodge has so ably set out in his book, From War to a New Authoritarianism, which I recommend. Um, and, and they did it especially by controlling Iraq's military and security apparatus and its huge and growing uh, at that time, oil revenues. And it remains to be seen whether this authoritarian bent um, that Nuri Maliki reinstituted in Iraq can be unraveled by better meaning Iraqi leaders, of whom I think Haider Abadi is one. However, um, disconcertingly, Nuri Maliki and his coterie still wait in the wings. They're not completely out of uh, Iraqi political life, and they, they remain there looking for an opportunity to come back in. And I think they're rooting for the failure of uh, Haider Abadi. The second major trend was sectarianism, by which I meant the trend since 2003 towards a hardening of Iraq's sectarian and ethnic fractures, which were always there in Iraqi society and politics, but in after 2003, hardening them into a rigid political order so that Sunni-Shia issues and Arab-Kurd rivalries dominate every political question and they enable ethno-sectarian extremist groups and terrorist factions to thrive. The process, I believe, began when mainly expatriate parties returned to Iraq in 2003 without a mass following inside Iraq, but with sectarian agendas in mind. And they set out to polarize Iraqi society on sectarian lines in order to create constituencies for themselves, and they did this very successfully. The first of these that I would note are what I would call the, Supri uh, the Shia supremacist factions. And I don't mean all Shia parties, but I mean those who were intent on, inst on uh, instituting, um, uh, on replacing Iraq's Sunni political and social ascendancy with a Shia one. These factions took advantage of the collapse of Saddam's regime to gain control of state institutions and attempt to push Sunnis out of Iraq's mixed sect provinces, something in which they did very successfully during the sectarian cleansing period of 2005 to 2007, and which is uh, uh, underway again to some extent today. Groups such as the Badr Corps, uh, the militia that was born during the Iran-Iraq War inside Iran as, as proxies of the Revolutionary Guards, uh, went into the Iraqi state institutions after 2003, and they remade many of them into sectarian sorting and cleansing machines, and they continue that kind of activity today. There were also Sunni uh, chauvinist factions. I don't mean all Sunnis, but I mean those 
committed to uh, trying to preserve the Sunni political and social ascendancy. And they fought back against the new Shia ascendancy after 2003 and used violence to try to derail the U.S.-led political process. These groups had originated in the Sunni Islamist movement of the 1970s and 1980s inside Iraq, which was affiliated with the Muslim Brotherhood and which covertly opposed Saddam during the Iran-Iraq War. But after 1991, this strain of Sunni Islamism was fused with Ba'athism in Saddam's faith campaign of the 1990s, which was a strange Islamicization of the Ba'athist regime that Saddam undertook uh, specifically to try to rebuild his broken legitimacy, which is when Allahu Akbar showed up on the Iraqi flag. It's when Saddam discovered his lineage back to the Prophet. It's when Saddam uh, uh, transcribed the Quran in blood, etc., etc., um, and finally, there were Kurdish maximalists. I don't mean all Kurds, but I mean those who were uh, uh, um, those who saw in the regime's fall in 2003 an opportunity to greatly enlarge Kurdistan, to create a land bridge to Syrian Kurdistan, and to move into political ascendancy over the Sunni Arabs and Sunni Turkmens of northern Iraq. And these factions have taken part in a violent Arab-Kurd struggle for power in northern Iraq that centers on the control of the oil-rich regions of Kirkuk and Mosul. Uh, on which the viability of any future Kurdish state depends, of course, or any future northern Sunni state. The end result of these three sectarian um, uh, forces has been, in my view, an Iraq that's more thoroughly sorted by sect and ethnicity than ever before, certainly in Iraq's modern era. Uh, the third political trend concerns the Shia Islamist resistance movements that have come to play a large role in the life of the Iraqi Shia and in the sectarian conflicts uh, both inside Iraq and raging beyond Iraq's borders. These originated in the grassroots Shia Islamist movement that grew up in Iraq during the 1980s and 1990s and was presided over uh, by Mohammed Sadiq Sadr before they evolved into a, a potent militant network after 2003 that was under the dominant influence, if not the outright command, of Mohammed Sadiq Sadr's son, Muqtada Sadr. Um, during these militant factions' long war against the U.S.-led coalition and against Iraqi Sunnis, the larger Sadrist movement fragmented into smaller militant groups that quickly came under Iranian domination, and this remains the case today. But in recent years, especially since the departure of U.S. troops in 2011, these Iranian-sponsored Iraqi militant groups have ranged beyond Iraq uh, to fight in the Syrian civil war and probably elsewhere, uh, to become colleagues to Lebanese Hezbollah, and uh, before returning home to take a major part in the sectarian conflict that escalated into open warfare last summer. The important point I'd make about these heirs of Mohammed Sadiq Sadr is that they own Iraq's largest single political party, the Sadrists uh, uh, political party, as well as its largest genuine uh, uh, grassroots political movement, uh, something that other Iraqi parties don't have, certainly outside Kurdistan. Um, some of these Shia militant groups enjoy the bountiful patronage of the Iranian regime, and this means they're able to pursue their aims while enjoying resources, open political support, and freedom of movement that Sunni groups like ISIS can't replicate. Also, given their youthfulness, these Iraqi Shia resistance groups, I think, are likely to visit violence on their enemies, both real and imagined, for at least a generation to come in Iraq and beyond Iraq. Now, tonight, to make um, some of these themes a bit more vivid, I thought I would show you, take a... a, a uh, an excursion here and show you a handful of recent images and maybe a, a couple of videos from Iraq and then after a quick wrap up uh, uh, I'd be interested in your questions so if you'll indulge me as I move over here 
I would first like to show you um, the, the, what, one of the major effects of uh, Nurimalki's consolidation of power was the alienation of the of large swaths of the population from the state. Um, uh, the more narrowly the state was, uh, the state institutions were controlled, um, the, the the more distant they, uh, uh, they they became from the population, and and the further away they they uh, they traveled from the social contract that is uh, that's been in place in Iraq. It's certainly in its modern era, which is that the state will provide certain essential services in return for uh, for the population, not indulging in political activity. Um, this, uh, but this led to, and, 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 which is the case across the Arab world, and which of course is the major reason for the Arab Spring revolutions and uprisings that we saw starting in, at the end of 2010. Well, in February 2011, Iraq had its own uh, version of the Arab Spring in Baghdad and some other cities, um, in which uh, uh, large numbers of, of people went into the street to protest against the Maliki government's failure to do things like deliver electricity, clean water, um, and, uh, uh, and, and so on. Uh, the Maliki government's response to this was to use the Iraqi military and loyal portions of the Iraqi military, the Iraqi police, to crack down on the demonstrators in scenes that looked very much like what, was, what we're seeing elsewhere in the Arab world. And it looked like this on the day of rage in February 2011. This is the scene in Tahrir Square in Baghdad where a large a protest is being broken up by gunfire from the Iraqi security forces. There you can see the uh, there you can see the, the mosaic in the Twitter square. Now we see a few thousand protesters running from the gunfire. So this is, uh, let's say, this is Nuri Maliki's Rocky security forces firing on protesters. Now, uh, the next uh, the next thing I'd like to illustrate for you is. Uh, uh, the, what, uh, what we began to see incidences of in 2012, certainly, although they probably uh, happened before that, where the Shia militant groups that had fought uh, the United States and Britain inside Iraq uh, began ranging out beyond Iraq, um, and particularly to Syria, where they went to, in particular, Damascus, uh, under, the, uh, under the banner of defending the shrine of Zainab from terrorists who were threatening it, uh, in Damascus, but they made videos of themselves, which they then circulated inside Iraq in order to issue a, a recruiting call for others to come and join them in the war next door in Syria. This is what one of those looked like. I'm the 
All right, there you go. So, the Shia militant groups have gone to Damascus to fulfill their holy obligation. They're even doing things like picking the Quran up and putting it back in its, in its rightful place. It's a very virtuous battle that they're fighting there in Syria. And uh, just in case this is not appealing enough to the young Shia men inside Iraq, we have well, we have other versions of the fall. <laughs> Here's the imagery, you know, these are the these are the Muslim warriors. They're coming to defend Zainab. Again, it's their virtuous duty. Um, and you, you can see here, uh, you, you can see here the slickness of this PR campaign uh, to get the young Shia men from southern Iraq to rotate, uh, to, to go to training in Iran, to go to the, uh, to fly to the airport in Damascus, and then to be fed into the front lines where they're going to fight the terrorists who are trying to destroy them. Um, when in reality, what they are is cannon fodder for the uh, Revolutionary Guards and for the Assad regime to be tossed into the front lines in order to fulfill the Assad regime, uh, fill the Assad regime's manpower deficit in its civil war against uh, uh, Sunni opposition. But you can see it's, it, it's there. there there will have been hundreds of videos like these circulating amongst the, uh, the young Shia of, uh, of southern Iraq. The reason, and, and you could, the reason we noticed it is because in 2012 you started uh, getting newspaper reports, media reports of the funerals uh, that were taking place in towns across southern Iraq as they were starting to take casualties in this sort of uh, what might. Uh, what the, uh, what the very able Iraq uh, security analyst Michael Knights calls uh, Iran's foreign legion. Now, uh, to move on to another thing. And uh, the response to uh, the response to the Maliki government in the Sunni community um, back in Iraq. What, what the, the trajectory that extended from that day of rage that I showed you in February 2011 was uh, a protest movement that looks something like the Occupy Wall Street movement, where in Sunni uh, cities and towns across the Sunni majority provinces of Iraq, there were protest camps against the Maliki government uh, that grew up. They started out as uh, they started out as calls for reform, but they very quickly turned into uh, uh, calls for a Sunni revolution against what they called the, uh, a Safavid government, a Persian-dominated government in Baghdad, in the in the uh, in the guise of Duri Maliki. So, 
uh, you, you won't be able to see this very well, but th this tells you, in the blue, it tells you where the Sunni protest camps were located. So we have Ramadi, we have Fallujah, we have Samra, we have Tikrit, uh, we have Mosul are the main ones, and, in, um, and also a town called Huija, which is not shown here. But then in southern Iraq, we had counter-protests against the Sunni protests, and these happened in, in towns where Maliki had a following, where also the Shia militant groups had a following. So we had counter-protest camps in Karbala, Najab, Diwaniya, Kut, uh, Samoa, Basra, and so on. So we had sort of <coughs> dueling protests. This turned into, uh, this, this turned violent pretty quickly. Um, uh, there was a particular problem that Maliki had with the protest camp in Fallujah, which had come under really the, the, uh, the heavy influence of militant groups, including those that were associated with now ISIS. So to, solve the, to try to resolve the problem in Fallujah, Maliki dispatched his deputy prime minister, Salah Mutlaq, who was, was the senior Sunni politician in the Iraqi government at that time. He dispatched Salah Mutlaq out to talk to his fellow Sunnis in Fallujah to come to some sort of political accommodation in January 2013, to call off the protests, present their demands calmly, and have a dialogue, and so on. And this is how Salah Mutlaq's uh, 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 venture out to Fallujah went. So these are the Fallujans from the protest camp. Sorry for the ads. Sorry, we'll just start that over. I'll move forward a little bit. All right, so this clump of people that is fleeing the thousands of, from the Fallujah protest camp while police fire uh, either live bullets or fire over the hands of the crowd, I don't know. This small clump of people, that's Salamutlock and his security detail who are fleeing back to vehicles so they can get back to Baghdad. That is how Fallujah responded uh, to, the, to the central government's uh, Attempted dialogue. Now, it wasn't that much longer, it was a year later then, that in the same city we saw this scene, January 2014. So we recognize these guys. That's the ISIS takeover of Fallujah in January 2014. Now, my contention is not that ISIS mounted a military expedition from Syria or Turkey or anywhere else uh, to come and conquer Fallujah. My contention is that the thousands of people that chased Saul Mutlaq away from Fallujah one year before were ISIS. That they, they, were, they were a rebellious population that a year later just broke into the open and called themselves ISIS. They were, they were in rebellion to the central government uh, and they chose to do it under the banner of ISIS. 
something similar happened in Mosul. Uh, you could have similar scenes from the protest camp in Mosul, where in 2013, uh, in April, there were large clashes that left dozens of people uh, dead, gunfights between Sunni uh, protest, uh, Sunni, Sunni militants and, uh, and the Iraqi police. This is the night that, uh, this is the night that Mosul was uh, seized, it was overrun by ISIS last June. This is a video that's, that's, uh, that comes to us courtesy of uh, the Middle East uh, Media Research Institute. seizure of Mosul, first of all, it was not just by ISIS, it was other Sunni groups, that Sunni uh, uh, resistance groups, military groups, political factions uh, that traveled into Mosul with ISIS, but the, the key element was that the population of Mosul was already primed for some change like that, some political change. So we're not talking about a strictly hostile takeover. Conditions have changed a lot since then, since ISIS had a heavy hand in the city of Mosul, but what I mean to say is that as of last summer, what the Sunni population of Western Iraq and Northern Iraq were primed for was a Sunni revolution. And when ISIS came promising a Sunni revolution, then there, were a, there was a large population willing to travel along with them. Now, immediately after the overrunning of Mosul uh, came the worst atrocity of the entire Iraq war. And it involved these poor people from Camp Spiker in Chakri in northern Iraq. These are uh, Iraqi Air Force trainees and other Iraqi security force members being led away, having been having surrendered slash been captured by uh, by ISIS and other uh, Sunni militants. The numbers involved, and you can see this line of people stretches as far as you can see. The numbers involved were over 3,000 were taken, upwards of 1,700, and then sorted. So Sunnis were allowed to go, most of them. Uh, um, but Shia uh, members who, who were sorted out were, uh, we, we suspect, almost all executed in ma and dumped in mass graves uh, by the river in Tikrit. 
up to 1,700 of them. Um, now, the re so what I'd like to what I'd like to cover next. Now, uh, it, so, so we have this we have this massacre. We have we have a not uh, entirely hostile takeover of Fallujah and Mosul. We have uh, the large scale massacre of Shia in Tikrit. We have on July 5th the self proclaimed uh, Caliph Ibrahim Abu Bakr al Baghdadi giving a Ramadan sermon in the open, broad daylight, um, in the Nur al-Din Mosque in Mosul. Uh, and in a very slickly produced video, which is, if you haven't seen, I recommend. Um, in other words, able to do in one stroke what Osama bin Laden and Ayman Zawahiri never managed to do, to present themselves in a major Arab city and to, and to plant a flag. We also saw at the time, because as, as we know, the, the sort of the, the military tide of ISIS went from uh, Nineveh province to Mosul to Tikrit and down the Tigris Valley uh, to the city of Samra and even to other, some other towns further south, Luya, uh, Belad, and so on. Uh, and, it, and it looked like ISIS had some irresistible momentum. Their propaganda was that the Islamic State would, uh, covered or would soon cover all of this territory so we can see the front lines. Now, what was the response in Baghdad uh, to, all, to all these developments? Well, it was a popular mobilization, first and foremost. Hesh the Shabi. And this is what that looked like. Sorry. <coughs> Bear with you. Uh, endorsed by Ayatollah Sistani, promoted by Muqtada Sadr and other, uh, other Shia political and militant leaders. So this is a street parade through Sadr City. This was happening in every major uh, Shia majority city in Iraq. Um, upwards of, I've seen estimates uh, uh, from 80,000 up to 150,000 Shia volunteers during the months of June, July, August, September of 2014 to very quickly uh, join the Shia militant groups uh, or newly organized militias and head out to the front lines to stop the ISIS juggernaut. And this is also the period of time when it seems like every Shia cleric in Iraq uh, donned camouflage and began going to the front lines with rifles and, and so on. That's the Iraqi Shia response, but it wasn't the only one. In the fall, as, as, the, as this popular mobilization began going out to the front lines, mainly as auxiliaries to existing militias like Qatab Hezbollah, Asab al-Haq, and so on, which are affiliated with, the, with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. Then we also saw this fellow show up on the front lines. This is Qasem Soleimani. He is the commander of Iran's Quds Force, which is the external arm of the Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is responsible for uh, uh, sponsoring uh, proxy and affiliated militant groups such as Lebanese Hezbollah, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Shia militant group. So here we have him next to some Shia militia fighter who's wearing a U.S. Army uh, uh, PT t-shirt. 
Uh, and this is on the front line. This is near the uh, the front in the town of Amerli, which is a Shia Turkmen town uh, just south of Kirkuk, which was besieged by ISIS for a couple of months. Here, over, and then on the right, we have another Qasem Soleimani, very friendly, with Hadi al Amri, uh, who is the uh, de facto uh, uh, leader of the Badr Corps, which is the Iraqi uh, Shia militant group that I mentioned in my remarks. And since last summer, Hadi al Amri has become essentially the uh, military supremo for the entire government of Iraq. And he's able to uh, issue out orders, coordinate operations for not just the Badr Corps and not just the Hestashabi and the Shia militant groups, but also for units of the Iraqi military. Here we have Qasem Soleimani uh, and Hadi al-Amri uh, visiting a militant group near the front lines near the town of Jirfa Sukkur, which was an ISIS stronghold southwest of Baghdad in the area that we used to call the Triangle of Death <coughs> in northern Babylon. And the guy in between them, uh, right here, is Hakim al-Zamli, who is uh, a Sadrist member of parliament who, way back when, in 2006, was the deputy minister of health in Baghdad, who used ambulances and the security guards for Baghdad's hospitals and transformed them into death squads that ranged around the city using ambulances, but also uh, were murdering Sunnis who reported to the hospitals for treatment, especially those who, with uh, gunshot wounds, wound up dead, or if they were Sunni members of the Iraqi security forces, they often wound up dead or disappeared. He, uh, he orchestrated the murder of his fellow uh, deputy minister of health, who was a Dabo party politician, who was carrying on an investigation against him for his death squad activities. Uh, and they staged an abduction of this fellow deputy minister of health uh, uh, to try to make it look like an Al-Qaeda-affiliated group had kidnapped and murdered him. But in reality, he just wanted to get him out of the way. The Maliki government made an erstwhile attempt to try him for these crimes, uh, but they didn't uh, jail his brother. And his brother went around visiting witnesses who either disappeared or recanted their stories, and he was let out. Now, as a member of parliament, he heads up Iraq, uh, Iraq's Parliamentary Defense Committee, which oversees uh, defense contracts with the United States and Iran and other countries. And as you can see, he's also donned camouflage and is now a Shia militant leader again as well. Lastly, uh, another key figure who's emerged, we can see Qasem Soleimani again, we can see Hadi al-Amri again, and the guy all the way on the right with the white hair and the glasses is a fellow named Agumethi al-Muhannis. <coughs> Uh, he's, he started life as a Dawa Party member who became a militant and gravitated into the Badr Corps. But in 1983, he helped to attack the uh, U.S. and French embassies in Kuwait, blow them up. He had a couple of assassination attempts against the Emir of Kuwait. Uh, and then in 2003, returning to Iraq, he became, over the course of a couple of years, the guy who helped to supply uh, explosively formed penetrator ID, uh, IEDs. Uh, to the Shia militant groups, the ones that were armor penetrating and that caused a lot of uh, deaths for U.S. and British soldiers between about 2005 and 2011. He's now back. Uh, he lives in a villa in the Green Zone, uh, and he is a de facto uh, commander of the Heshtashabi, Kitab Hezbollah, and other associated militant groups. Now, uh, so that's an illustration uh, there of the, of the themes that I was referring to earlier. Uh, I would leave you with the, 
I'd close with a note about ISIS. Um, I think, you know, if, if you look at these longer-running trends, I think you have to conclude that ISIS inside Iraq, I don't mean, I don't mean outside Iraq, but inside Iraq, ISIS is an outgrowth of the force of Sunni chauvinism that I spoke of, growing out of the Sunni Islamist militant movement of the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. And it's been able to draw its popular support from within the Iraqi Sunni community as a matter of reaction to the other forces that I've mentioned. So the former Maliki government's authoritarianism, which alienated the population, Shia supremacism from people like these in the photograph here, uh, Kurdish maximalism reaching across uh, what the territories that Sunni Arabs and Sunni Turkmens considered to be theirs by birthright, and also the Shia Islamist uh, uh, resistance, but the Hashdashabi that we saw up there before, and the guys who called themselves defenders of Zainab in Syria, who rotated back to Iraq and are now uh, doing things like depopulating Sunni villages in Diyala, the town of Jerfa Sukkur, and so on. And as I mentioned at the start of these remarks, I think Daesh or ISIS is a, is a meta-phenomenon in Iraq. It rides on top of these longer-running trends. There's a larger conflict going on on several different levels. And even if, I think, every ISIS fighter dropped dead tonight, the war would go on tomorrow as long as the larger political issues are unresolved. The fundamental questions that have dogged Iraq... Uh, and led a near constant conflict since its creation, such as the relationship between Shia and Sunni Arabs, the relationship between the people and the state, the relationship between Kurdistan and the rest of Iraq, and the relationship between Iraq and its neighbors. All of these remain unsettled. And as long as you have people like Iraq's strongmen, sectarians, and the resistance in charge of the pathways to conflict resolution, then you're not going to resolve the conflict. And I think further conflict amongst the Iraqi communities is assured. And on that note, uh, I'd be interested in your questions or discussion points. That's great. Thank you very much. Thank you for a, a multimedia extravaganza. Uh, Joel told me he's only going to speak for 15 minutes. Yeah, sorry so, about that. Uh, three quarters of an hour later, he's finished, but, but, but with a great deal of really interesting things to say. I will take questions probably in groups of three, but first, you sit at the back with the beer. Let's keep, let's keep it no, civil. Question, let's get a question. question. Not once did you mention American involvement. Not once did you mention your boys over at Blackwater and the people that they murdered and the guy that you were advising and you were supporting him. It has become abundantly clear that America and its imperial agenda does not care for the interests of the people of the Middle East nor the wider region. For that matter, you supported extremists, terrorists, savages in Syria, people who you're still labeling today as rebels. Can you get to the question? I am. But first I'm exposing you because you're a liar. I think we've... Uh, right, get to, the question. get to the question now, please. You insulted him three times, now I have the decency to ask him a question. You occupied, illegally invaded Iraq, 
killed many, many people, and until today you fail to claim responsibility because you are accountable and you continue to lie to these people. So the question is? Telling them that it's sectarian. Question? What's the question, though? You know, I don't even have a question. <laughs> you don't have a question. So you lie. All right. Right, you man with the white jacket, thanks. Resurgence and the Can I just say, can I just say, as I mentioned at the beginning of, of this talk, the, what I was going for in the book was not to, talk, was not to uh, rehash the American role, was to, try to, was to try to elevate the Iraqi role, to cast more light on the Iraqi role. It, it's actually, it, uh, it's, it's quite, I, I think it's narcissistic, uh, it's hubristic by definition, to say that everything that happened in Iraq happened because Americans did this or that, as though Iraqis have no agency. That's, that's to insult the Iraqis and disempower them. They're people with agency, they have, they have, uh, they have their, their real politics, they have, they have real social dynamics. That's what I was going for. So if, uh, I, I, it would be nicer to have questions about the Iraqis. Um, but, well, but I will. Yeah, you need to answer. Let's take a third and then I'll no, well, come back to this. Right. Uh, yes, you saw the beard. Thank you. Could you just say a little bit, perhaps? I, mean, I know it's um, going back a bit. Of the a monarchical Hashemite regime, which was created by the British after the First World War, like Winston Churchill. Could you say a little bit about the Great Iraq? Winston Churchill. Sorry to interrupt, sir, but we, we've got your questions. Okay, that's the question. Okay. Could you say right. anything about that? Yeah, you, sir. Colonel Raven, thank you for your uh, presentation. Um, I was just wondering whether your thank you, uh, thank you for your presentation. Um, I was just wondering whether your perceptions and your understanding of the, the ongoing conflicts and, and the background behind it has um, has been well, whether DOD and state have been receptive to that, um, and as a result, um, what's your what's your opinion of the coalition's current strategy? What could be done better? Right, see, at the moment you've got three questions on the table. Possibly we could take a fourth while you're alive, but you don't have to answer that. Why don't we, why don't we handle these? Um, uh, hopefully we've already dealt with, with the first, uh, which is the, 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 the gentleman's critique that we didn't mention the American role, but that's by design, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, not to gloss over any of it, for good or ill, uh, but just because I think that it's, it's more important now. We know a lot about the American role. It's, uh, it's, this, this should be the Iraqis' time. Uh, secondly, uh, General Petraeus and the strategy of the of the Sunni awakening. Actually, first the the the, the, the Iraqi Sunnis didn't need to be armed. 
They were already armed. Iraq is a country awash in arms. So actually the awakening didn't involve arming. The awakening actually, and it didn't involve money at the beginning. It involved an, uh, an agreement um, between the U.S. troops and Iraqi tribes uh, generally began in the beginning, um, starting in um, starting in the mid uh, uh, upper Euphrates region in Anbar province. Just that if they would stop trying to kill us, we would stop trying to kill and capture them. As simple as that. Now that evolved into something more formal over the course of 2007, but it, is, it essentially originated as a non-aggression pact. Uh, and uh, the tipping point in that uh, the tipping point in that uh, in that agreement, because there were many attempts at it, 2004, 2005, 2006, that didn't get traction. Uh, it didn't get traction until the summer of 2006 when some tribes of, of, uh, of Anbar province um, felt they were existentially threatened by Al-Qaeda in Iraq. Uh, and they couldn't fight both Al-Qaeda in Iraq and the United States at the same time. And, and the Iraqi government. Uh, so they needed to make peace with at least one of those warring factions and they chose to make peace with us. Um, that was essentially, that's, that's where the awakening uh, came from. Uh, to touch, okay, to touch on the Hashemite oh, just, monarchy. Just, I mean, yeah. The question, do you think that the, the policy of the awakening exacerbated the instability that's here in Iraq at the moment? No, I don't actually. And in fact, I, the, the awakening was a buffer against uh, uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq slash ISIS. They're the same organization inside Iraq. You know, the one is an evolution of the other. And one of the reasons that the Sunni communities were so vulnerable um, to the, the militant infiltration, I think, certainly um, in the last couple of years, since 2011, was that the awakening disappeared. The awakening came under pressure from both Al-Qaeda in Iraq, slash ISIS, on the one hand, and from the Maliki government on the other. Um, and and those, those same, uh, the dozens and dozens of local Sunni leaders um, that had local militias, you would say, that were generally in alignment with the Iraqi government or at least broke, brokered into alignment with the Iraqi government by us. Uh, were, m many of them were one by one taken off the table. They were killed by al-Qaeda in Iraq or other Sunni militant groups or they were rounded up and arrested by the Maliki government and, and a number of them executed uh, for crimes of terrorism. So the Sunni awakening was removed from the table and that created a vacuum. That uh, and, and space that ISIS was able to move back into. Uh, the Hashemite monarchy, um, how, how should we address this? Um, uh, other, let, me say, let me say this point, that I don't believe that... So, so, I mean, there's, there's an argument that Iraq's an artificial country, it's uh, an illegitimate invention of Winston Churchill, etc., etc. I don't hold with that. And I don't think that... Um, to, to, I don't think that you, can, that you can go as far as many have gone in saying that um, the flaws were baked into the cake in 1921. There were some flaws. A Sunni political ascendancy, uh, I, I think, um, that was baked into the cake in the, in the early 1920s was probably a bad choice. I, but we understand why Churchill made that choice. Um, uh, because of the, I think, large part of the, the Shia revolution of 1920, Shia-led revolution 1920. But, uh, but I don't think that it's an unbroken chain of events that leads up to the flaws that are within the Iraqi state today, although there are those major questions 
that haven't been resolved. Um, uh, so can I can I let that be uh, enough of an answer yeah, for, yeah. for that question? Uh, the gentleman's question on the, my personal outlook and its reception at the Defense Department, State Department. Well, I mean, these are my own views. I should have said that up front. I don't speak for the Department of Defense or the U.S. government. And people inside the U.S. government know that. Um, they, um, let, let me just say, let, I would just say this, is that I agree with the aims of the current strategy, the current policy, let's say, uh, to degrade and defeat ISIS. I think that has to be done. And there has to be a very uh, healthy military component of that. ISIS is a military force. They have to be defeated as a military force uh, in the near term. The, uh, my offering to this debate is to say that, um, if there, that that must be accompanied by a political track that arrives at a stable political arrangement in northern and western Iraq in particular um, so that there's not the son of ISIS after ISIS is militarily defeated that they don't come back because we've seen we've seen this movie before. I I was telling Dr. Dodge at lunch by my count Mosul has changed hands eight times since March 2003 from Saddam's regime to us and the Peshmerga, from us and the Peshmerga to the Sunni insurgency in November 2004, from the Sunni insurgency to us and the Peshmerga again in January 2005. From us back to the Sunni insurgency in the summer of 2005. From the Sunni insurgency back to us in the fall of 2005. From us back to the Sunni insurgency in Al-Qaeda in Iraq by December 2007. Back to us in the summer and fall of 2008. And then back to ISIS in June 2014. I guarantee you that if there's not a stable political arrangement made in Mosul and the surrounding region, that it will change hands. Uh, that when it changes hands a ninth time this coming summer and fall, and I think it will, that there will, however, be a tenth time and an eleventh time and a twelfth time and a hundredth time ad infinitum because the, the space, the political space will always be there for some ISIS-like group to, to move back in. The same will be true in Ramadi and, and Fallujah. So I think you, there must be uh, uh, a productive political track that accompanies the military track. Okay. That's great. Yes. My name is Tahir Swift, and I'm uh, from an organization called Iraqi Women's Solidarity. So, you're talking to an Iraqi. I have lots of things, I'm afraid some of the things that you've shown were misrepresented. misrepresented. Uh, I, I mean, um, really, at the end of the day, we can't not talk about the Americans. Because without them, we wouldn't be here. We wouldn't be in this situation. Any kind of ground conflict, very violent conflict, using depleted uranium and using cluster bombs and all sorts of lethal weaponry and drones going, and the amount of people that the Americans have killed and tortured, and, you know, I mean, you, you, it's these things, you can't wipe them off and say it's nothing to do with us. I'm sorry, but it, it is to do with you. So, you know, uh, without justice and accountability, we can't go forward. Okay, I think and, I. So, I mean, uh, to, to say that uh, the, the protests in, in, in Ambar province, which uh, you have misrepresented terribly, was, was very peaceful for one year. One year. And I, if, you, you must have not read their demands. I read their demands. The first demand is a release of women prisoners. Please go and read. 
Human no, rights. I've read them. I know the demands. Human Do Rights you? Watch report. Sure. No one is safe. It's a terrible indictment okay, I, I, of the way that you have left I think I get the North America okay. and the United Kingdom. I'm, I'm asking both of you, why are you so soft? You were so worried about human rights in the Saddam stamps. And I am exiled from Saddam and I'm the same Saddam. I, I, I left Iraq because of Saddam. But now nobody cares. Nobody cares about it. Everybody is switched off. Even, even the displaced, the displaced in Mosul. I've been around Mosul people, homeless people. And you, they showed you the cameras day in, day out, day in, day out, until the UMPs voted to go to war, then they switched off the cameras. But these people are still suffering. And you're talking about two more years of bombing, dropping bombs. You dropped bombs on Al-Qaeda that didn't work. Why is it going to work now? Okay. So, and there are lots and lots of things. Um, these people, these people, the people, there are lots of things that they're here for. By the way, memory is an Israeli company. So I'm like, let's let's I've do that. It's not an Israeli video. Wait a minute, you put two questions on the table about the Anbar protest and the, the, the light of human rights. You can have one more question. Well, why was it difficult for you to protect our borders? Anybody can okay. go in Iraq. Anybody can do anything in Iraq and Iraq. That's, you your, thir that's your third question. The why was it so difficult? Okay, that's great. Moving on to the gentleman with the beard along there. What were the three? I'll remind you in a moment. If you want to know, we have That's enough. That's enough. Right, sir. Colonel Raymond, you seem to have rewritten the history of Iraq, as you, as you mentioned. There's a movie, the killing and the murder that occurred in Iraq and the destruction is not a Hollywood movie. You have, you have uh, been retained to advise Petraeus on how to murder people in Fallujah. Can you please tell me, and that's the first question, do you expect one day, in the fullness of time, whether you'll be indicted for uh, uh, soliciting violence against the innocent people of Fallujah? And do you anticipate a war crime tribunal uh, as I hope one day when I'm still alive it will take place. You, <coughs> you have uh, quite conveniently rewritten the history of Iraq and the troubles of Iraq which you and, and the people like yourself live, I don't know which state you're from, clearly you're a military man, uh, you have skirted around the fact that the Kurdish tribesmen, warlords, have been causing problems to in Iraq since the 1950s. So it shows how little you know about Iraq. Uh, apart from the fact that you, you call this the green zone, right? You, you mentioned these thoughts. Right, you've, got, you've, you've had two questions as well. Yeah, we can, the question is... The question your your is, third question, last question. Yeah. The, the last question is, do you anticipate one day to return to Iraq and not to, not to, to the so-called green zone as you, uh, everybody calls it. it it's, a, it's, a, it's a citadel for keeping the Americans. You mentioned that uh, Shia and Sunni... Come on, the audience I is getting restless. Can you move to a question? Please, 
I am neither Sunni, neither Shia, I'm but not what, a Kurd, but what's I'm your a Christian. Well done. My mother, my mother, can and you, my, my, sir, my... Sir, please, can you ask a question? No, listen to me. Well, I'm going to have to ask you to sit down. Okay, so what's... My my brothers died because of the consequence of people like you. You should be indicted the first time... Okay, that's it. Fine, thank you. Right, so you have... um, Professor Dutch, please, I have a question on one of your students, and it's going to be my topic of decision. Yeah, well, well, you can come back in a minute, right? So we'll (laughs) need to... Right, you've you've mentioned right, you've misrepresented the have you misrepresented the Anbar protests, especially their demands that were peaceful for a year? Uh, no. Secondly, thank you. No. What, why have you no? Been, and I, I think wait, actually. Wait, wait, wait. Let oh, me sorry. get through them all. Those six okay, years. very good. Why uh, have you been so soft on human rights abuses after uh, 2011? And why couldn't the, after 2003? Okay, from 2003 onwards. And why did the US? proven unable to defend the borders and I guess inferences leave Iraq open to everyone coming along. The fourth question is, uh, do you believe you'll be indicted for war crimes? Uh, And fifthly, uh, you didn't mention the Kurdish warlords who've been a problem in Iraq since the 1950s. Okay. Um, Thank you. Uh, No, no, I I, I don't think I misrepresented the Anbar uh, uh, Protests. Uh, if you would, if you would take a look in the book, uh, we discussed uh, discussed them in greater detail, and uh, they were peaceful Maliki at the beginning. Please, 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 enough. Um, no, enough. You've had your, you've had your chance. And, let him speak, and let other people ask him. And uh, and and I've actually I've I've, I've written a couple of articles um, uh, criticizing the Maliki government's heavy-handed response. Uh, to these protests as of 2011-2012 and actually pointed out um, Dr. Dodge and I both were arguing in 2012 that Nuri Malki was displaying the tendencies of an Arab dictator and and the tendencies of a police state against, uh, to to a great extent, legitimate uh, popular grievances. Not just Sunni ones, but but Shia protests as well. There were Shia protests in the South going on at the same time, uh, to which he also had a heavy-handed response. The protesters who filled the streets in Baghdad in February 2011 um, were not just Sunnis. There were Sadrists there. The Communist Party was there. The Iraqi Ummah Party was was there. Um, Maliki used the police against all of them, and that was something that we called attention to um, uh, in, in, in our writings, both of us. Uh, so, and I don't, I don't, uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think we've been soft on human rights uh, either. Um, but also, as, as I say, I mean, it would be quite again, it would be quite uh, self-referential and hubristic to say that the Americans caused Iraqis to do everything they did after 2003. We did not, uh, we did not persuade. Excuse me, Mel. We did not persuade the Badr Corps uh, to do death squad activities or the Jaysh al-Menti to do death squad activities. We did not, persu- we did not persuade Jaysh al-Islami or al-Qaeda in Iraq to do suicide bombings. These are things Iraqis decided to do for themselves. Um, concerning the borders, this has always been a terrible problem, and there was a great debate inside the U.S. military over how best to handle the borders. Um, and it stems from the fact that we had usually too few soldiers in Iraq to do the military tasks 
that needed to be done. So that it was, it was there was always there was a constant tension between trying to secure Baghdad and the regions around Baghdad and use that same uh, number of troops or the Iraqi army or police troops um, there versus the tension of using them on the border to try to seal the border. And we went back and forth and back and forth, moving troops from the middle out to the border, uh, back to the middle, etc., etc. I was part of some of that because the unit that I was uh, that I went to be attached to in Iraq uh, was sent from. Uh, South Baghdad all the way up to Tilafer and Sinjar to try to seal the border up there in early 2006, which we did for a while, but then we then the next unit after us was pulled away from there and sent to Ramadi and left the border undefended, and then Al-Qaeda in Iraq came across again. So that's the, that's the border issue, I think. And it's something that the Iraqi government ha- was not able to do without us either, I think, because it's very difficult to... Uh, it's very difficult to, to secure that kind of border. You have to be a very strong military institution to be able to project power that far out from, the, from central Iraq, and, this, and the Iraqi government doesn't have strong military institutions. Um, do I expect to be indicted? No. Um, in, in terms of the Kurdish warlords, uh, this, uh, uh, I don't mean to, to gloss over, to, uh, ex, uh, we have a long chapter in this book about the uh, uh, about the, the the competition between uh, Arabs and Kurds. I don't make mention of the Christians there. Uh, the, the, this this uh, this I don't cover in the book. Can you be quiet, please? You've had a long slab of time now. Give the man the right to answer. Yes, sure. But but no, I I I, uh, I certainly don't mean to gloss over Arab Kurd issues. I think it's a very uh, uh, I think it's a very fundamental question, and I, I think I said that in my remarks, that the relationships between Arab, Arabs and Kurds inside Iraq uh, uh, has to be resolved or lead further conflict. Okay. Right. Yes, you, sir. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, my question is, how uh, was Almanaki able to uh, uh, have strategic alliances with both Iran and the United States mm-hmm. at the same time, uh, knowing that both had uh, contradictory uh, interests? Right, and there was a question. Did you have your hand up? No. All right, if you give it to yeah, the gentleman here. No, no, um, in front of you. Oh, thank you. Hi, uh, My name is Ahmed Abdullah. I'm uh, advisor of the Iraqi Parliament, speaker, speaker of the Iraqi Parliament. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, I know very well what's happened there. I was in Tahrir. I was in the Friday uh, prayers against Maliki for the whole year. And I will, let's say, say to myself that I'm one of the activists that tried to convince Sunnis to throw problem and stay on a peaceful demonstrations. It was hard. Hmm. At the end, ISIS came to the tent, let's say Kai the first, and say, he's not responding. So what's happened there, just you said, correct. It's one of the biggest issues that Maliki didn't respond. This is first. Secondly, and it's my question, now, I have so many tasks with the Sunnis. I would say, okay guys, let's fight ISIS, and let's rebuild our cities in infrastructure, which will cost money, which the central government will give it for us, and the international community will support. It will be happen there or not. It is very important to say to the people that the international community have all the guarantees for the Sunnis that it will be rebuilt again, their cities, 
and maybe go to the federalism and independency at the end to get rebuild the political process again. Is it possible or not? Because I think the Sunnis now is the last losers. Why they are fighting ISIS? What's going to happen for them? Thank you very much. Mm. Right, third question, and this yes, you say in the blue top. In Shia-dominated cities where these militias have formed in response to the formation of ISIS and the of ISIS, uh, is there any oppression of Sunni minorities by those Shia uh, militias? Excellent. There, there are your uh, your three. So Maliki, how is it possible for Maliki to form a relationship, strategic relationship with the US and Iran at the same time? Great question. Will the international community and the United States, I suppose, and the central government in Baghdad deliver money to rebuild the areas of Iraq now under ISIS control? And three, in Shia majority cities, is there currently repression of the Sunni population? Okay, the question about Maliki being able to maintain a strategic partnership with the U.S. and Iran at the same time. Uh, first and foremost, this is a, a product of Maliki's own uh, um, adaptability, I think. Uh, Maliki uh, is someone who was loyal first and foremost to his own power. And so he was willing to maintain relationships with whomever could uh, secure him in power. And to the extent that the United States was willing to do that, then he was willing to be a partner with the United States. To the extent that the Iranians were willing to do that, he was willing to be a partner with the Iranians. And I also think that uh, as he entered into these partnerships that he saw uh, the lines extending to each as something that he could use to balance against the other so as not to be under the, the thumb of either one. Um, for the United States part in this, my own this is my own view. I can't speak for anyone else in the U.S. government on this. Um, to, to some extent, I have come to believe that we uh, misjudged Maliki uh, from, uh, from an early stage, that we attributed um, to, we attributed to him uh, a greater sentiment, a greater sense of uh, of nationalism than he actually has. That we attributed to him uh, less uh, sectarianism than he actually holds, a less sectarian worldview than he holds. And the thing that tricked us the most, I think, was the fact that he made the step against the Sadrists in the spring of 2008, in fighting a military campaign against them in Basra, Baghdad, and uh, other cities in the south. And he actually was willing to use Sunni Iraqi army troops to do it. Um, and, and that left us with too great an impression that he was a nationalist who was willing uh, to act against um, militants, uh, against Shia militants. In fact, I think his major motivation was that the Sadrists were his greatest political competition amongst the Shia parties, and he was looking to remove them from the table uh, before going into the provincial elections of the following year. Um, so, and we, we, but we clung to that assessment of Maliki as a nationalist uh, for uh, several years longer than we probably should have. And I think there are U.S. I think there are some U.S. Uh, leaders who would, who would second that. Um, in terms of the international community in the United States supporting the rebuilding of Sunni areas uh, once the military campaign against ISIS has uh, 
has say pushed them out in the conventional military sense. Number one, I personally b- believe yes, this must be done. You have to, it, it, and it has to be part and parcel of the political track uh, that that I was referring to earlier. There has to be a reconstruction track as well, an economic development track. I don't know. I I, I can't speak for U.S. policy uh, on this on this count. I I think that yes, U.S. policy w- will very much support investment in Sunni areas, but I also think that that. It's more likely to be productive that the U.S. and the international community would facilitate investment, private investment or state investment from elsewhere in the region, in the Sunni areas. As a port, I don't think what you're going to see, my personal opinion, is large amounts of U.S. Treasury cash being allocated for reconstruction projects anywhere in Iraq. I think those days are over. Um, but what you will see, I think, is the United States encouraging international donors, and foreign investment in, in the Sunni areas of Iraq, Ramadi, Fallujah, Mosul in particular. Uh, I, do think that, I do think that would be U.S. policy, although I can't speak for U.S. policy. This is just my personal uh, assessment. The question the young man had about whether in, <coughs> whether in um, mixed-sect areas of, of Iraq, uh, Shia militant groups are oppressing Sunnis or... or uh, um, yes, that is happening. Um, it's happening in, in certain strategic areas around Baghdad in particular and in Diyala province. I think it's driven by, um, it's driven by probably uh, an Iranian-supported goal to make the Diyala Valley secure, a secure line of communications from a Shia-led government in Baghdad to Iran. And so you're seeing a pretty harsh... Uh, response by the Shia militant groups against Sunni villages in the Diyala Valley. Now, some of which were ISIS uh, bases. ISIS used some of these, and other Sunni militant groups used these villages as bases. Uh, but there's been sort of a collective punishment. And the Human Rights Watch has documented this. Aaron Evers, who's the excellent Human Rights Watch investigator in, in Iraq, has, has documented this. It also happened in the city of Jerfa Sukkar, as I mentioned, uh, southwest of Baghdad, where a town of 70,000 uh, mainly Sunnis, was depopulated down to zero as part of the uh, anti-ISIS campaign in recent months. Great. Yeah, you sit at the back there first, and then uh, the, the gentleman with the jump first, and then the gentleman with the suit second. Uh, first of all, I apologize uh, for my poor English, but uh, I am from Italy, a country that was liberated by Anglo-American troops. And uh, today I realize in all the days of my life that today I am free because your boys died for our freedom not 70 years ago. So thank you very much. Indeed, for this, the question. Since uh, uh, we face uh, ISIS uh, both uh, in uh, Iraq and both uh, in uh, Libya, do you think there is uh, a lesson that uh, we can draw from the situation uh, in uh, Iraq in order to deal and to face ISIS uh, in Libya? Excellent, thank you. Yes, you, sir. Yeah, it's, um, you said the US did encourage the Shia militias, but to what extent do you think the U.S. Sorry. Yeah, to what extent do you think the U.S. were guilty of applying grossly unequal pressure? So, 
<coughs> you know, on the one hand, you had Stanley McChristian pursuing AQR, but then by his own account, it wasn't until 2007 that any effort was put against Shia groups. And even after that point, he was very timid uh, for fear of annoying Maliki and, and breaking down the trust and the relationship between the commander and the prime minister. Which is left, which probably only, well, in my mind, you only compound with a sense of isolation of the Sunni groups and the situation we've got today. Right, third question. Yes, you, sir. It's going to take some time will, for my turn. Will uh, ISIS be ever defeated when Wahhabi, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, encouraged by Anglo Americans? You see, they are still uh, uh, Anglo American support, they rely on the oil. They rely on the selling of arms and all that sort of thing. Uh, it seems, you see, that this support is given by some of the agents of Saudi Arabia and Qatar and Sunni hardline, you see, uh, supporting the ISIS. I don't think they will ever be defeated. Okay, thank you. Three different questions. Right. The first one, uh, I'll, so are there lessons about the rise of ISIS in Iraq for Libya. And do you consider ISIS in Libya to be, I don't know, a, a conjoined organization? Uh, I, no, I don't. Uh, you know, ISIS uh, it seems to be a, a, a broader phenomenon that, that grows out, but the same dynamics, grows out of the same forces, alienated population, failure of, a a failure of one political model, and the only competing f political model is political Islam. Uh, it seems the only alternative seems to be political Islam. I think those are those are similar. Uh, and also, let, let's say the uh, the 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 forces of uh, balkanization uh, and and uh, fragmentation of of a, of a country. Um, so I, I think those I think those translate. I uh, I'm. I'm not an expert on Libya, not a, not a scholar on Libya, but I, it, it does seem to me that the, the main lesson that would translate over is the same one I mentioned before, which has to be, I think, uh, in, uh, uh, central in, in any resolution of the conflict in Iraq, the ISIS, and the ISIS problem in Iraq, which is that there has to be a political arrangement that the local population buys into, has a voice in, uh, sees as credible, that's the only way it'll be enduring. If it's not, uh, if it's if it's a military solution only, if it's a counterterrorism solution only, and there's not a political arrangement, then the swamp will never dry up. The vacuum will never be filled. It, it'll it'll the space will be there for a group like ISIS, or whether it's ISIS, whether it's the uh, the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, whether it's Al Qaeda and the Maghreb, etc., et, et will fill the space over and over and over again. I think that's the main lesson that has to has to be taken. You have to fill the political space in a way that the population uh, uh, believes is is legitimate. Um, second question from from the gentleman on: um, Did the U.S. Uh, let's say indirectly uh, encourage the Shia militant groups by uh, by uh, by a disparate amount of attention on the Sunni militant groups versus the Shia militant groups. I think that the I think the U.S.-led co military coalition, my personal analysis, was guilty of that in 2004, 2005, um, and it began to shift in 2006. The, I, there are many reasons for that. And number one is that Al Qaeda in Iraq is uh, is is an easily identifiable target. 
Uh, you don't have to make much of a political judgment about whether Al-Qaeda in Iraq should be targeted. And remember, Al-Qaeda in Iraq was seeking explicitly to provoke, under Zarqawi, a sectarian civil war um, and to spread it beyond, beyond Iraq. So they were, a, they were a problem that had to be handled very, very uh, seriously. The, the debate inside the coalition and inside the Iraqi government at the time was, though, from, coming from particularly Ibrahim uh, Jaffrey, Nuri Maliki, and some other uh, senior uh, Shia politicians, that was not, that you should not have that same kind of approach to the Shia militant groups because they argued uh, to the, their American coalition counterparts, British counterparts too, that the Shia militant groups existed as a response to Al Qaeda in Iraq and to the bath and to the bath, the vestiges of the bath. And that if you would solve the Al-Qaeda in Iraq problem and the vestiges of the Ba'ath problem, that the Shia militant groups uh, would be channeled into politics or would disappear. That the force generating them would dissipate. Um, the events of 2006 show that they were wrong. And so over the course of 2006 into 2007, then the coalition began to readjust its focus. And by the time you got to... Uh, by the time you got to late 2006, the pressure was really rising on the Shia militant groups, the military pressure. By the time you got into 2007, the end of 2007, it had become intolerable for the Shia militant groups, which is why you got uh, a, a virtual war between the Sadrist militant groups in particular and the Maliki government by the beginning of 2008. So, so I, I don't. I agree with you for the purposes of 2004, 5, and parts of six. But I don't agree after that because I, I was there. A couple of members of the audience were there and witnessed this and had a hand in it. Uh, were uh, witnessed it and witnessed that balance shifting very much so, very consciously uh, inside the coalition leadership. Uh, there was another. Right, the third question is: <clears throat> I think um, can ISIS ever be beaten if? I think the inference is if Qatar and Saudi are supporting them and if the Anglo-American foreign policy is supporting Qatar and Saudi. And also, the selfish motive of arms selling arms, arms selling and oil and other support, you see, because whole economy of Anglo-American sustained by these two by, rich countries. By the oil. Okay, great. I, I, I'm not an expert. I can't, I can't, really, I can't really speak intelligently about state sponsorship of groups like ISIS. I, I, I simply don't know. I'm not well enough informed. Failure or understanding by Anglo-American about the religious aspect. They, they should study very carefully right up to 1400. So they have no idea what so. They have so no language. There is a family... Wait, 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 excuse me, sir. There's a family relationship in, in terms of radical Islam from Saudi Wahhabism through to ISIS. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. But I mean, the, the, the thing that I know the most about, though, is that... Uh, so I, I do agree. There, there's, there is there's very much a region-wide uh, militant Salafi problem. And I, I view that as, as existing up here. Um, as, as, uh, and, and it is able to overlay itself upon a local political conflict. And to my mind, I, you have to attack both. I, I agree that you have to attack the, the, the regional militant Salafi problem. That's sort of beyond my, uh, that's, that's sort of beyond my field of study. And, and the one that I turn my attention to the most is, is, is trying to study um, the, uh, the causes of the local conflicts 
that these uh, these higher level Salafi groups tend to come in and hijack, whether it be and it would I would I would say the same approach should be taken whether it's Boko Haram in Nigeria, whether it's Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, uh, in in the, the in uh, North Africa, or whether it's ISIS hijacking a local political uh, conflict inside Iraq, whether it's ISIS a Jordanian come from Zarqa to try to enlist Mosulawis and use the Mosulawis' conflict with the KDP as his entree into it. Or uh, an Egyptian come from, uh, come, come from uh, uh, Egyptian Islamic Jihad, Abu Ayyub al-Masri, the Egyptian, and you know, very extreme uh, associates of the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, come to Talafer to try to hijack a local Sunni Turkmen versus Shia Turkmen political dispute. Uh, I, I say that you, you, can, you, you should attack, the, uh, attack it on a regional and an ideological level, um, but, but you also have to know the, the, how to resolve the local conflicts that they yeah, can come know, in and hijack. You can pressurize, you see, Saudis. You see, to bring about an approach yeah. between Shia and Sunni. My, my response to... Uh, only way it can be done. Sir, please. So long please, as you sir. Can you... Thank you. My, 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 response to, my response to that would be that uh, the, the local conflicts also will generate opportunity after opportunity for some other group to come in and hijack uh, that, that local conflict un, until they're resolved, certainly on a, on a political level. Right. Thank you. Uh, Joe Raven's book is for sale. How much is it? 1440, is that right? And um, he will sign it for you if you care to buy a copy. If not, we should uh, thank him very much for his talk and the insights he's given.